This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Department of State? How is the U.S. Department of State modernizing its IT systems and infrastructure? And what are the benefits and risks of generative AI in supporting U.S. diplomacy? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of State. Kelly, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So let's start off by giving our audience some context. Could you tell us about the mission of your office and how it's organized to support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of State? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I just do want to say, like, what is what is the mission of the U.S. Department of State? And I can tell you, when I was considering coming to work at the Department of State, leaving the Pentagon after many years, I looked up the mission and I read it and I thought, you know, this is pretty awesome. So it's to protect and promote U.S. security, prosperity, and democratic values, which to me is like, wow, where else is it my job to do that? My office is really set up to support that. And a lot of that is supporting these relationships. This is an organization that is very much based on relationships. Uh, and the way we have relationships is that we communicate. So here in DC, I've got a mix of foreign service officers and then also civil service folks working together to in DC, we're really, you know, we're operating the global network. We are building solutions. And then also we're doing some governance oversight and policy, but then also overseas, I have foreign service IT pros uh, at every one of our, you know, 191 countries, um, over 250 locations globally. We have a person there who is an IT pro at every one of those locations. So we're really set up in a very federated way with leadership, you know, truly everywhere in the world. It's great. Yeah, federated model. As as the CIO, uh, what are your duties and responsibilities at state? Yeah, so... I um, I think what I say to my folks is we've got three jobs and they're all really important. And one is operations. And by operations, I mean silent running is what we're aiming for, right? You send an email, the email goes through. You, you need to make a telephone call, your telephone works. That's your cell phone or your desk phone um, or Teams, whatever you're using. So one is operations. And what makes us specifically, you know, pretty difficult at the State Department is, you know, we have a global network like lots of organizations, but we were in places, we're in places now where our diesel fuel is being siphoned, right? We are in really tough places globally. And also we're in Paris, France. So you name it, we're there. Uh, and we have to make sure that we can operate successfully in all those places. So that's the first thing. The second thing we do is we build enterprise solutions. For example, productivity suite software, right? We're all sending emails or security. So we all need to be accredited, right? I am Kelly Fletcher. We know what I am doing in the network. We know we know what I am doing with systems in the State Department. And we, in my organization, build these enterprise solutions and then they're consumed. You know, 
both by our actual, you know, our sort of core customers who are people in the field doing diplomacy, but they're also consumed by system owners. So part of the federated model at the Department of State is that there are bureaus. So the Bureau of Global Talent Management, the Bureau of Consular Affairs, they are building systems to support their specific missions. Uh, and these systems have to take advantage of these enterprise solutions that my organization builds. And then the last thing, the third thing that we really have to focus on is governance, oversight, and policy. And I will tell you that we have had huge changes in our cybersecurity posture because of this governance, oversight, and policy. And this is my organization saying very clearly, if you're a system owner, you must do the following things. For example, you must have multi-factor authentication. You must have encryption of data. Um, and if you need help getting there, we have engineers who can help you do it. Um, if you need technical solutions, we're provisioning these enterprise technical solutions, but we are making very clear policy. Uh, and then building a community in the department of IT pros. So not just in IRM, but in all of the bureaus that are building big IT solutions. Mm. With such a global reach and a portfolio that's uh, that significant, operating within a federated model as well, what are some of your top management challenges that you face in your role and how have you sought to address them? Yeah, this is a great question. And what I can say is, so when I came from DOD to state, I did one thing really wrong. And that was on a Thursday, I was in the Pentagon. And on a Monday, I was at the State Department. And I would encourage everyone to learn from that. That is not enough time off between jobs. <laughs> but what it allowed me to do was to see very much like I came just from the Pentagon and now I'm in a new place and we are having the same conversations, right? I'm in a different room, I'm talking to different people, but we are having the same conversations about challenges. And that's really this legacy debt, right? So I inherited legacy debt at the Pentagon. I've inherited so much legacy debt here at State. And that's systems, right? That's like old systems that are sort of, you know, clunky. We've all used old systems. That's my infrastructure, right? My telephones. I'm, I looked at my telephones and thought, oh, no, you know, <laughs> what, what decade are these from? Um, and then also that's, you know, like, for example, even my architectures. So the way our network works today is that all of our traffic, uh, wherever you are in the world, you get hoovered back to D.C., that mm. really, really made sense when we made that decision 20 years ago. Uh, it does not make sense today. So that's one thing. It's just an, a bunch of legacy debt. And then the other thing I want to highlight is, you know, and this is both a challenge and an opportunity, is um, I arrived at the State Department just as generative AI mm. is really sort of getting widely used in the world. And I can say, like, this makes me really excited and a little bit scared because it changes our cybersecurity needs. And also it's going to open up a whole new range of things that we can do for the workforce. And the mm -hmm. last thing I want to talk about, and this was a DOD as well, is, you know, the changing shape of the workforce and workers. So not just in very, very recent memory of COVID and work from home and all of that, but also this idea of government service and, you know, how long is a career in the government? And I think I'm actually, my generation is sort of at the inflection point where I would be surprised, you know, if I spent 20 years at the government, but not that surprised. And many of my friends are, you know, they're going to do a 20-year career, a 30-year career in one place. But we're seeing a change in the workforce. So how do we recruit and train and retain 
the right people and also allow them opportunities to grow. I was wondering, given what, I mean, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, Kelly, but what, what surprised you? What has surprised you most since taking on this role? So the the one thing that I, I think I came in with a little bit of hubris, which is like, you know, <laughs> DOD is global. We're all day global. And so people kept saying, oh, the State Department is global. And I kept thinking to myself, like, okay, yeah. And then I got to the State Department and I realized what global is. So what it means is that we are in these physical locations that in many cases we've been in for decades, which has adds a lot of complexity, and we're operating there all the time. You know, I can't airdrop some some men and women with radios and say like, okay, see you in a week or two. No, we're living there. We're living in Nairobi. We're living in Djibouti. We are. We have folks there all the time. We were in Khartoum, Sudan until recently. And it's not a small number of people with backpacks and radios. These are people living there. They have to do all the things that we do in D.C. They need computers. They need all different classifications of networks. They need um, all different kinds of communications. And they're riding on the infrastructure of these countries. So for me... The biggest surprise was I thought I understood what global was, but this is a different kind of global. That's a great point and something you don't really realize. When but I was wondering, you, you told us about your time at DOD, but could you tell us more about yourself, your career path, and what were some of the insights you've brought from previous federal service to your current role? Yeah, so I actually, my path, uh, what I always say is no one is more surprised than me that I'm the CIO of the State Department. Like I... I feel so blessed and so lucky. And I think that it's it actually has like shown a lot of really cool things that the federal government has done to recruit people who wouldn't have thought of serving the federal government. So I joined the federal government because um, I went to a career fair, which I don't know that I've ever met anyone else who has said that. And while I was there, DOD was advertising for people who didn't uh, really know anything about the military, but were good at, you know, sort of math and science and analytics. And um, I talked to them and it seemed kind of okay. And so I ended up working at DOD. And to me, that's like, like sort of a mind blowing way that I like found this incredibly rewarding, incredibly exciting career. The things I would say that I learned, I would say even early on being at these very, very big enterprises, I learned that you have to be federated and I learned that you can't know everything. So for me, like there are huge swaths of the technology work that we do at the State Department where, you know, I understand them, but I am in no way an expert. And so a lot of what I learned, you know, especially as the acting CIO of the Department of the Navy and then as the principal deputy CIO at DOD is that you can't know everything. So like a lot of your job is to find good people and then enable them to be successful. And so I've been trying to do that here as well. That's terrific. And it's a good lead into my next question because it it really dovetails with um, how do you lead? And I think you hinted at that a little bit. I was wondering if you could elaborate. What, what from your perspective, given your career path, given your background, uh, your academic background as well, what are the characteristics that make one an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of your leadership principles that you follow. Yeah, so I, I always um, tell folks, you know, what is my commitment uh, to them and what do I need from them back? And I truthfully, I don't know that these are like the leadership commitments that we should all have, but they're the ones that I am able to achieve. So the first thing is transparency. I am 
super transparent. I'm very transparent with folks who work for me. I'm very transparent laterally. I'm very transparent to my boss. And what I've said is I'm just not like smart enough to be sneaky. I'm just, we're doing a bunch of stuff. So let's just be honest and clear with each other. I try to be really collaborative and mission focused. And this is something that has, in my experience at State, been incredibly beneficial. Folks are really motivated by the mission here um, and sort of pulling us all back to that, saying like, wait a minute, we're all trying to get to the same place, which is like secure, resilient communications. How do we get there? And then the last thing that we're working on now is operational excellence, right? I want to be good at the basics, and that's how we build trust. So I think as we move to, you know, generative AI, machine learning, doing all sorts of really cool and innovative things in the technology space, you know, for the State Department to trust us to do that, everything needs to just work. We need silent running. So those are sort of the three things I'm working on. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Department of State? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, so I want to talk about, you know, I go from leading, your ideas about leading, and then I want to talk about the vision and strategy you have for IT at State. I was hoping you could tell us more about that IT strategy and perhaps highlight some of your strategic priorities in this area. Absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you, I first came to state and I sat down with my boss and I said, hey, I'm going to do all these really cool cybersecurity things uh, that are going to make us more secure. And he said, "Um, great ideas, Kelly. Um, Also, you know, we need you to improve the user experience and we need you to know what the user experience is. So please go to the field. So this actually gets back to a little bit of this global, you know, at DOD, I traveled a lot. I traveled internationally some. Uh, My friends and family said, oh, you're going to work for the State Department. I bet you'll travel so much. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I travel a lot for DOD. (laughs) And I was wrong. Uh, That was just completely wrong. Since I have been here, I've had the opportunity to see so many different locations. Um, Just to name a few, like Sydney, Fiji, Bangkok, New Delhi, Frankfurt, Brussels, Bogota, Nairobi, like it goes on. So 
this to me was has been very beneficial um, in addition to being pretty amazing sort of trying to identify what do the folks in the field need because in many cases they just need a way to communicate with their colleagues their their foreign you know interlocutors who they who they talk to regularly what do they need to do that so i've i've one example of this and um that's whatsapp so um hmm. Coming from a different organization, we did not use WhatsApp for communication. Um, but globally, and I think, you know, people who travel who have friends abroad, they know, you know, WhatsApp is a really common way to communicate. And so as I was talking to ambassadors, talking to, to folks at embassies, I kept hearing over and over, you know, I need to be able to use WhatsApp to communicate with the, the folks in country. And so we actually sat down and came up with an architecture that I feel like is the most secure way to get that done. And so this is an example of really how are we coupling improved cybersecurity with a customer experience that enables these relationships, which is really our core business. And then the other thing I'm trying to do is, you know, I think there's a subset of work we do where consistency is, is really the critical thing, right? We just, we all, you know, there are technologies that are well understood, Wi-Fi. It's going to be the same. You know, we're going to have a similar architecture everywhere we go you know, collaboration suite. We don't need a bunch of these. We need one or, you know, one or two. But there are other areas where there's new technology. So I'm, I'm thinking generative AI, I'm thinking machine learning. And I really try to be flexible. We have a lot of folks doing very interesting and meaningful work in these spaces. And we put some bumpers on there, you know, for cybersecurity. But I believe that this is a place where a thousand flowers should bloom. We should know what's happening. We should know who's trying what. And then in a couple of years, we're going to have to sort of cool this down. You know what I mean? But I love the flexibility in emerging technologies. You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but my next question was around specific uh, in, internal drivers, external trends that helped shape and inform your IT strategy and some of the principles o- around it. Yeah, so internally, we've been really strong on field first, going to the field. And I will say there's a little bit of like a DC not DC disconnect, or there can be a feeling uh, that, you know, I mean, right, like, oh, Mm -hmm. the people from DC are here. Well, yeah, so I keep going places, which, you know, they're sometimes accompanied by sighing, you know, by the people I'm visiting, but it is really good because we are learning what works. So I actually, we're rolling out something we call tech for life. And what that is, is that your phone, your laptop, it'll be um, associated with you and not the place that you work. And so the idea is our foreign service folks, they're moving every, you know, one to three years. It doesn't make sense for them to be provisioned a phone and a laptop in Mexico City and then leave that phone and that laptop and come back to the States, do a little home leave, and then go to, you know, um, Frankfurt and be provisioned a new phone and a new laptop. That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So I was having all these ideas about Tech for Life. I was really excited about it. And in D.C., I had come up with a plan that I was sure was going to work. And I, I'm not going to tell you the details because it's embarrassing. I had come up with this plan that I thought was great. And then I went to, I'm not going to tell you where, but because I, I will embarrass the IT pro there. But I went and spent a couple of days overseas at one place and talked to them and heard their problems, heard their challenges. And um, finally, at the end of the third day, they said to me, you know, you've been talking about your plan for Tech for Life and we're just not going to do it. It just really doesn't work. And for me, I was like, oh, you know, how would I have known this? How would I have known this? So 
it was it's been very eye opening. Um, we're really focusing on what does the field need and then what kind of cost are we pushing to the field? And by cost, I mean both dollars, but also just resource and attention, you know, and then externally. We've talked a little bit about this, but, um, you know, generative AI, huge change coming down the pike, I think, for all of us. Um, certainly, we want to use it to decrease low value work. You know, we have humans doing work that a machine could do better. Let's stop it. That said, we really have to make sure that we're balancing sort of all the benefits with the risk, um, which we're still assessing. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, even setting aside AI, man, we are seeing that our adversaries are getting more and more mm -hmm. capable uh, in the cyber realm. And so because of that, we have to be, you know, this is a little bit of an arms race. So we have to be really vigilant um, and, and sort of stay on the leading edge of tools and training and technology to secure our networks. That's a wonderful transition into my next question. It's around IT modernization. I'm wondering what you're doing in that regard. And specifically around your network modernization initiative. What could you tell us about that? And what are some of the benefits and some of the challenges associated with doing this? Yeah, so we're modernizing our network through something we're calling TRON, which is the transport only network. Mm -hmm. And um, right now we are still, you know, we've got some pilots going. Um, this is coupled with Wi-Fi, which, you know, this is actually an example of improving cybersecurity and customer experience. So folks at an embassy, they know what Wi-Fi is. They like Wi-Fi. We roll out Wi-Fi. When I talk to them about Tron, which is what's happening behind the wall, you know, they don't care. And that's that's the right feeling to have, right? They just want to consume the network, go about their business. So we're trying to combine these two things together. What Tron is doing is instead of all of our traffic from wherever you are in the world, getting hoovered back to DC and then going to wherever it's going, whatever cloud environment, we are going to have traffic go to where it needs to go more directly. The other thing we're doing as part of Tron is being more intentional with our architecture and where our data is. So I will tell you, like maybe two years ago, I thought, you know what, everything in the cloud, nothing edge. Why would we have something edge? I don't think that that's a modern viewpoint. We need to have some edge store and compute in most places. Sometimes we may use regional capabilities, but right now I have some on the edge, I have some regional, I have some in the cloud that looks right only the way that this has grown up is totally organically. So it's not clear to me that we have the right services and data in the right places. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned the edge. And I mean, you'll have non-enterprise networks operating at the edge, so to speak. How are you migrating those? Or what are you doing to make sure, if you can't migrate them, that they're being protected or sensor they have sensors? Yeah, so this is, that's exactly right. You have described the entire approach, which is like, if we can't, if we must have a non-enterprise network, I need the men and women who are looking at the network all day long. Some of them are in IRM, some of them are in diplomatic security. I need them to be able to see what is happening. That is frankly the one big difference I see between DOD and state is that at DOD, I think they have enterprise visibility and at state, we're still building to that. Wow. So the reason these networks were stood up, and I think, you know, there could be this like underlying like what in the well they they were stood up for reasonable reasons these are you know good people trying to do the right thing we've had policy in the past that certain work couldn't be done on our enterprise network so that's part of the reason we have these non-enterprise networks we've had latency so at because of this network architecture i described where everything's going to dc 
some things just don't work or don't work well. And then also we have some block content. So that's why we've stood up these historically. And then I'll tell you other things like sort of a Christmas tree got hung on them as they existed. So we're partnering with the field and this is the place where we had a very hard charging IT pro and he looked at his network when he arrived at his location and he said, I don't want to have these non-enterprise networks. This is a hassle. This is inefficient. Uh, and he started getting rid of them just on his own. And so then we said, oh, you're the pro. You're the pro who knows how to do this. So now he's got a coalition of the willing uh, and they're all going through and saying, why do I have each one of these networks? What are they doing? And would it be possible to migrate today? Okay, no. What do I need from big IRM to make this feasible? And sometimes, frankly, it's as easy as hardware, which, you know, okay, great, no problem. Sometimes it's solutions. So printing, I've talked more about printing recently than I, I care to, but we're solving these problems. And what it's doing is it's like radically reducing the number of non-enterprise networks we have. And then we've also tiered them, which, you know, there's like the ATM maybe would count as a non-enterprise network. You know, I, I want it to be secure, but like this isn't, it's not State Department data. I'm not, I'm not as concerned. So as we tiered them and then started looking at the workloads, changing policy, providing technical solutions, providing hardware in some cases, we've seen that the number of networks in total is going down. And most importantly, sort of this critical work is happening less and less on the non-enterprise networks. It's migrating back uh, to where it should be the enterprise network. So Kelly, given the evolving nature of cyber threats, uh, can you elaborate on your efforts to enhance IT security across the enterprise? And would you tell us more about the department's zero trust strategy and how it factors in to securing systems and infrastructure? Yeah, so zero trust is one of our big pushes, um, you know, sort of along with the rest of the federal government, certainly. Um, and I would say we're initially focusing on identity and networks. Okay. Um, and so we've been rolling out our identity solution. And again, we get to this really federated model um, where every system owner needs to ensure that they're consuming identities from the right source. And then networks, this is where we get into the, the Tron model, the transport only network that we're moving to. The other thing I would say is, you know, sort of adjacent to zero trust and, you know, certainly inherent to it is, we're just improving our cybersecurity readiness generally. And I wanna give a shout out to our department CISO, Donna Bennett, because under her leadership in the past like two to three years, we went from multi-factor authentication, this is like a standard thing every system should have. We went from about 12% of our systems having that to over 90%. Wow. This is huge. So sometimes I even, you know, I get questions from from outside State Department that says like, Is, aren't you worried about your data encryption percentages? And I say like, I mean, yeah, we'd like to get to the last 8%, sure. But there's a narrative out there that we are way behind on these sort of basic readiness measures. And that was true, uh, but it is no longer true. And so that makes a huge difference to our posture today. Well, that's terrific. I mean, as, you know, as a follow-up, I wanted to ask about some cybersecurity issues you see impacting state. And I had, it, I had the horizon about five years, but what do you think over the next few years will be the biggest, most significant issues around cybersecurity you'll be dealing with? Yeah, so I think we're just going to see a continued increase in the sophistication of attacks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think that, like, that actually is good 
frankly, from my perspective. So fundamental to zero trust is that you assume that your adversary is in your network. And like, if I were cast to say like, the adversary can never um, access anything in State Department, then you're losing. It is losing, it's not good. But the way we win is that we see that there is something anomalous happening and we take action rapidly and we prevent lateral movement. That is how you win. So with the number of zero days out there, I think it is unrealistic to say that we are going to prevent any sort of access to anything ever. No, there's mm-hmm. going to be anomalous activity. And the trick is you find it, you stop it, you prevent lateral movement. And so that's where you know the men and women who are sort of in the sock every day they're doing really important work. And that work is done uh, through diplomatic security. So I do want to give them a shout out. I'd like to transition to acquisition, if I could, Kelly. And what is being done at State to facilitate how the department acquires software products and services? And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the Evolve contract and the impact it is said to have on how IT is procured across the department. I'm really excited about Evolve. And it is still in source selection. So like... uh, I have one sentence that I'm allowed to to tell you almost. We're gonna be okay. we're gonna be super careful about it. But the exciting thing about Evolve is that it's department wide. So we have this federated model where each bureau is, you know, some bureaus are doing their mission specific IT development. And Evolve allows us all to use like a similar group of vendors. So not exactly the same vendor, right? There's, you know, a, a source selection will will happen. But the idea is that there would be a number of vendors in every category, but then they can reuse work, right? So if you built something, if they built something for a system in consular affairs, they can just reuse exactly that work for the system in, um, you know, um, for example, the Bureau of Oboe, the overseas building guys. So it's going to allow increased reuse, which I think is going to help with security and, frankly, just make us more efficient. What are the benefits and risks of generative AI in supporting U.S. diplomacy? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. Over the last couple of years, I've interviewed many federal chief information officers from a variety of agencies. It is from this rich library that I've called together their insights on federal IT and their efforts to transform how their agencies do business. Guy Cavallo, CIO at the Office of Management and Budget, tells us about his cybersecurity efforts, especially his pursuit of zero trust. You know, zero trust, I think absolutely with today's cyber attacks is the way we have to go to protect our, our data. The the old build a moat around your network and you'll block everybody there, but once they're inside, they can go anywhere. The hackers have proven that that is their favorite model, that they can get in and go anywhere. So uh, I'm excited about that. Like I said, we're, we're well on our way on the journey. It is going to take uh, a couple years to do it fully, and we're able to do it in stages so that we can do that. One one thing, going back to user experience, 
what we did at SBA is we replaced the VPN with the zero trust connection. And that meant that the end user went from having to click on about eight things to get started every day. We went down to two things, put in your PIV card, type your PIN, and you're done. So the users love that. Uh, from a cyber perspective, uh, the CISO and I love it because with a VPN, you had the option of a user could turn it off and still use their laptop. With Zero Trust, we don't allow them to turn it on. If they're gonna log on to their laptop, it's always gonna be connected through Zero Trust. So we're able to do patching, we're able to collect performance data, all the things where if they're not logging in with the VPN, we, were, we weren't able to do. So that's the easy part of Zero Trust. Mm -hmm taking Joe and Sally and, and then deciding Joe's going to get this access to these three systems at this level and nothing else, and Sally can have access to these five systems at this level, that's a lot of legwork, and that's going to take us longer. But I'm excited about that. Claire Matarana, Federal Chief Information Officer, identifies some cybersecurity challenges facing U.S. federal agencies and offers some ways agencies are working to address these challenges. This is the number one team sport that we are participating in, um, along with the Office of the National Cyber Director, CISA, uh, you know, NSC, NSA, right? There are a, a multitude of acronyms with all of our efforts focused on cybersecurity. So at, at the highest level, we're really architected a new model for cybersecurity across the federal government. You know, we're in a unique threat environment. Our adversaries are pointing an enormous amount of resources at us, at particular federal agencies, and they, frankly, the whole federal enterprise. So it is really critically important that we work like a team to make sure that cyber defense is our singular goal. And we're also working to make sure um, at individual agencies that we're keeping, um, you know, Americans' information confidential, that we're preserving data integrity, that we're um, remaining accessible and resilient to these nation state attacks. But in a lot of ways, it really does require us to work and think differently, to deploy new technology, and very importantly, to adopt new mindsets. We cannot keep operating the way that we were previously operating and expect that we're going to have any different outcomes. So, you know, we published the zero trust strategy. Um, we made sure that prior to publishing it, that we took a period for public comment um, to make it better, right? We cannot do the work that we all do without our private sector partners, without academics and researchers that are spending every day focused on these areas. So we believe that the zero trust strategy was really showed how the federal government was leaning forward and leading in this area. Um, and we are also working very hard to make sure that we are cascading this message to all levels of the workforce. This requires senior leadership that is assuming, you know, responsibility for the cybersecurity posture of their agencies, as well as building staff capabilities and technology solutions and architecture and budget and investment to meet today and tomorrow's challenges. Um, and most importantly, delivering impact. 
So I'd say that, again, team sport, we're all working together collaboratively, but it is going to take the workforce really embracing this wholesale change in um, never trust, always verify um, as the new method at which we have to think about securing our missions. Information technology is a critical part of how we operate the federal government and deliver services. Claire Moderana, the federal CIO, offered the following insights on efforts to scale modernized IT across federal agencies. One of the things I think that is very important to recognize is that through the communities of practice, CIO and CISO councils, we are working together every single day, sharing playbooks, innovative best practices. No one in the federal government, no matter how small the agency, should be starting with a blank piece of paper. That is how we are going to help scale and modernize IT across federal agencies. So we are building very significant partnerships, um, building on work that had been done previously and continuing to grow partnerships uh, with our budget colleagues, making sure we're making the right investments at the right time, that we're also sharing and inspiring the federal workforce, right? Doing, you know, demo days and communicating with key stakeholders, how modern human-centered design delivers great products and services um, and provides great return on investment, which is a really important part of what we do. So I have a couple examples that I, I really have been inspired by. You know, one is um, the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, mobile app, um, right? Most of the American public uses a mobile device uh, pretty frequently, if not daily. Um, and we're used to getting access to goods and services. So veterans now can use the VA app to locate facilities. They can view and cancel appointments. They can securely message their doctors, access the veterans crisis line. And they also get to use some of the um, native technology in the mobile device, right? So, you know, geolocating. So looking up something and then having to write down the address and then look up the address when you're in the car um, isn't quite as fluid as being able to look up the address on your mobile device and have it move immediately into geolocating in a map and getting you on your way to your appointment or, or uh, service. So that uh, things that VA is doing, I think so far, they have a 4.7 or 8 ranking on the um, app stores. Um, and I think uh, close to a million veterans are using the app right now. And to me, that is a great story that can be shared with multiple other agencies that are also delivering benefits to the public um, on how they went about doing this, what contracting vehicles they used, how they budgeted for it. So again, trying to help agencies not start at a blank piece of paper, but really leverage some of the key learnings that we have had um, across the government. Through the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of State. So, Kelly, I'd like to transition to data. What are some of the most significant challenges in managing the increasing volume of data and making it accessible to a broader range of stakeholders? Yeah, this is so I am really excited about what's happening in data. And Matthew Gravis, the chief data officer at the Department of State, is one of the people who showed up in my office like day three, and he is doing amazing work. And really, our teams have been partnering. So to give sort of a highlight of where we are in the movie, what he has been doing is these six-month-long data campaigns where his organization gets feedback from a bunch of different folks throughout the department who say, hey, here are my problems. Maybe data could solve them. And, you know, truthfully, he's been doing this for a couple of years now. But I think the first year people were like, I don't even know what you mean. You're going to do what to help me solve what? But now they're very popular. So they get some ideas from the field and then um, help solve a specific problem with data. And I think he said something that just to me is really resonates, which is nobody wants to go to a meeting about data tagging or data architecture. We're not going to build a lot of excitement that way. Mm -hmm. The way we're going to build excitement is by solving mission problems with data. So we are partnering with him to do that. And then the one other thing I do want to highlight is the kind of data we have. And this is a place actually where DOD and state are very different. So DOD, a lot of engineers building a lot of things, you know, doing a lot of testing. We're shooting things and we're driving things and we're, there's a ton of quantitative data. And at the State Department, we are a narrative organization. We write cables and they are in narrative format and they are, you know, they are paragraphs of text describing what is happening. So as we sort of move into more and more advanced tools to look at data, I think it's going to give us so many more opportunities to take this narrative data and translate it and combine it and summarize it. It's just going to be incredibly valuable. And so as a follow-up, how are you approaching the demand for data across, say, multiple cloud environments? And as we talked earlier, around the edge at embassies and foreign posts, how are you doing that? Yeah, this is, um, so uh, I open to ideas. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> a, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but this is, a, this is a real challenge is, you know, we have data on the edge, data regionally, data in, you know, State Department cloud, data in sort of, you know, uh, vendor-run clouds. How is this going to work? And I think we're certainly trying to match like with like. So, you know, for a certain kind of workload, we would hope that all of the data pertaining to that mission-specific thing would be in one cloud. And we're going to be in a multi-cloud environment, and that's intentional. And so this is a place where I'm really hoping that our vendors can help us be successful because this problem 
is not unique to the State Department. It is common to any big enterprise. We've all got data in all different places and we need to be able to query it, right? So maybe I need to query data that's in a different cloud and then hoover back just the results, but I can't move data you know, between clouds, regionally in between clouds, from the edge to clouds. I can move results to some degree. I can move a subset of data, but we are looking for our industry partners to help us be successful in doing this. Mm, yeah. And, you know, switching gears a little bit earlier, Kelly, you mentioned the rise of generative AI and, and its effort and, and impact on diplomacy. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more about some of the benefits and risks of this technology, this innovation in supporting U.S. diplomacy. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this is the place where I'm I'm really intellectually interested, not even just mm-hmm. for my job. So very frankly, you know, we need to better understand these large language models. We sort of what I'm hearing universally is that they present a, a pretty great risk. And also, I think, as we all know, dramatic promise. So how do we make sure that when we introduce these systems, you know, frankly, to our networks that we're using these for our business? How are we getting the benefits of these while also being very conscious of security and also the ethical and responsible use of these models? The places where I'm excited today about these models are uh, related to, you know, frankly, language. So just like we have people all over the world, they're looking at the local press. We have many people who have phenomenal language skills. And this is a place where generative AI can help us, can help us with language um, and can also help our local staff. So we have local staff at every embassy and English is maybe not their first language. Generative AI can help sort of bridge Mm. this language divide, right? It's not perfect. We've all seen examples of generative AI not being perfect, but language is a place where I'm really excited about the capabilities it brings today. You know, I think what we're working to do at State is make sure we're moving with the federal government, moving at a reasonable rate, really talking to the folks who have built these large language models about security, and then moving out as fast as is sort of reasonable when we're comfortable with the ethical and responsible use of these models to use them even for our internal data, right? So we have decades of years of cables. These are incredibly rich in their narratives. I love the idea of using generative AI to tell us what we already know, frankly. Well, that's a great that's a great use of the technology. I never really thought about that. And, and you know, going back to something we talked about earlier, I was wondering what you're doing when you move from DOD to state. How did you seek to create a culture of innovation? Sort of challenging old ways of doing IT and hoping to re-energize your staff to, 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 to pursue innovative successes across the department. And the fact that you're operating within a highly federated model makes it hard. But how are you doing that? Oh, see, I think the federated model is maybe like one of the key. Yes. Okay. Because I don't want to own everything. I don't want IRM (laughs) to own everything. You know what I mean? Like consular affairs, they're doing all visas, passports. That's all consular affairs. I need their systems to meet cybersecurity standards and maybe user experience standards. But man, I love that there is an exceptionally capable consular affairs CIO, uh, Luis Coronado. I mean, Fantastic. So a couple things. First, I would say I showed up and I was so impressed by the workforce that I inherited. People were passionate, people who've had incredibly exciting lives. 
um, and people who are really like leading the department from a technology perspective. I think what I'm trying to do is, you know, let them run. And part of that involves having a reorganization of my organization. Just like I inherited all this legacy debt with, you know, sort of processes and technology, I inherited an organization that needed a transformation, very frankly. And so this transformation is, you know, sort of at the highest level, what we're saying is instead of having, you know, a leader in the operations field and a leader in foreign operations, we are recognizing that this has created a lot of duplication. You know, a telephone is a telephone is a telephone. There are some things that are a little bit distinct about the field, but a lot of what we're doing is universal to both, you know, DC domestically and overseas. And so because of that, we want to move to a model where we have operations and that's all of the operations and we have enterprise infrastructure mm-hmm. and enterprise services. And so, you know, infrastructure is your network, your phones, all of that hardware that makes the magic happen. And then enterprise services is more customer facing, right? That's our help desk. That's as we're building applications. Um, so it's frankly, it's not a perfect division. There's still a Venn diagram, but man, that Venn diagram was really, it was like closing in on just one circle when we had ops and foreign ops. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. Earlier, you mentioned you had all these ideas around cybersecurity or securing the infrastructure. And a question came up, well, that's great. Let's do that, but also enhance customer experience. And you you sort of talked about that, but I'm wondering um, in, in your efforts to do that, how have you adopted sort of user-centered design principles or what other ways are you enhancing the customer experience? Yeah, I. so this is a place where I have a lot of, I think we have a lot of things in flight. Okay. So we have done a really good job on cybersecurity standards, right? You must have multi-factor authentication. You must encrypt data. Um, but user experience standards, we are less strong on. So part of it is that I want to, you know, use this federated model, but get some standards so that there's like a baseline minimum requirement for every system the department rolls out. That's the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, a lot of our customers are asking for things that help them with their relationships. And so they want to communicate more rapidly. They want to communicate with more means of communication. You know, at DOD, there was a lot of like, you know, we want swarming robot drones, like really technical bleeding edge stuff. And at State, what I'm finding is the majority of folks really value silent running. They want everything to work very smoothly. And a lot of that is communication, frankly. So we're working hard on as we roll out new systems, are we communicating to the right groups? Are we testing with enough people? I want the transition to a new system to be smooth. And that is, you know, partially about the system, absolutely, but largely about communication. Yeah. How does the fact that the U.S. State Department is a global enterprise, which you've articulated throughout our conversation, and that it has, it's a platform of, of, say, 50 or more bureaus, agencies, whatever you would like to call them, entities, all of which operate at various levels of clearance, how does this make your job harder? Mm, yeah, this is actually, this is something... I will just admit here, before I started at the State Department, I had never been inside a U.S. Embassy, never in my life. And I had looked at them when I had traveled and thought, oh, these are the people who will help me if I have a problem. That is true. That's 100% true. Um, But I had never been inside. And so the first embassy I went inside, I started looking at the names on the doors. 
And I was like, what in the world? USDA? You know, like this embassy does not just have State Department people. So I am really lucky that I have a strong relationship, that the federal CIOs have a really strong relationship with each other. We're all very motivated to get to increased interoperability, to make sure our folks in the field are able to do their jobs together. And then in specific, I do want to shout out to Jason Gray, who's the USAID CIO. So he and I both started at about the same time. And I'll tell you, there have been a number of things where he and I have said, like, I think we need sort of a fresh start on this. Like, let's look at this again. And one one area is Wi-Fi in specific. So I will say, like, I feel like I have a lot of support, which is wonderful. And also, you know, when you have so many different organizations, it is a challenge. How concerned do you, Kelly, about our adversaries using quantum computing to hack encrypted government systems? Uh, frankly, super concerned. This is mm-hmm. this is a thing that when I think about um, the horizon, this is to me the biggest thing from a national security perspective for us to be concerned about. There's a really good quantum readiness migration sort of fact sheet. It's from NIST, NSA, and CISA that I would recommend that everybody read. You know, very frankly, we think our adversaries may be harvesting our data now, holding on to it, and then hoping to decrypt it later. So for me, quantum-resistant cryptography is one of our top priorities. And that was true at DoD. It's here true at State also. Hmm. Good point. So how are you leveraging partnerships and collaboration both, and you, you did a wonderful job explaining internally within, I mean, the, the federal, U.S. federal enterprise, but how, are, how can the private sector help and how are you engaging aid in industry? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I actually just got back from a vendor trip where uh, I went to California and I went to Seattle and, um, you know, talked to, talk to some of our big vendors about what are they seeing on the horizon? What are they building to? And then I talked to them about our requirements So I will say, like, I think we have a really strong relationship um, right now. And this is a a big part of our workforce, frankly. Um, Even the folks who are, you know, we have folks embedded. And then we also have, you know, the tools that we're using every day. So I expect security to be, you know, the seatbelts come with the car. I'm stealing that from John Sherman, the CIO of DOD. It is so good. (laughs) There's no better way to explain cybersecurity. The seatbelts come with the car. You know what I mean? I don't want to have to pick them separately. Um, I need cybersecurity to be baked in from the beginning. I expect more and more that AI will be part of their offering uh, in the same way that, you know, we see an email that sometimes, you know, your computer will suggest something to you. That kind of sort of magic I expect to see more and more. And then I also, I really rely on industry to help me think about what is going to happen in the next five to 10 years. What should I be investing in today? Because there isn't an alternative, but just keep in my mind that this problem may get solved by industry in the next, you know, five to 10 years. What are you doing around workforce development, recruitment, retention, and how are you working to address maybe some of the IT skill gaps that you're dealing with and attract the right people and get them on board sooner rather than later? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the challenge. (laughs) So one thing we are doing is um, we have incentive and retention pay. I mean, that's folks with certain skills or certain certificates, and that's true for both foreign service folks and civil service folks. You know, we're always on the lookout for, for the IT pros that want to join the team. And I will give a plug here for the foreign service IT pro job. Very frankly, if I had known this job existed 10 years ago, um, I hope that I would be in Nepal as the IT pro there. 
it is the coolest job. And the way you join foreign service, it's, it reminds me a little bit of military service where you've got sort of two kinds of workforce, but foreign service, you take an exam and then you get a bunch of training, you know, you pass the exam and then you are sent to a, a location overseas. It is a really cool job. And then also civil service. We're also always hiring there as well. Mm, that's great. So ask me uh, a couple more questions and then I'll give you back your day. As we're thinking about it, what are some of the maybe key takeaways you'd like our listeners to be left with from our discussion? Well, so thing one I would say is if you're interested at all in the foreign service or in the civil service, but, you know, serving the country, there are jobs available at careers.state.gov. I would just really encourage everyone to go there and take a look. And then the other thing I'd like to to note is, you know, I really, I so value our vendors and I'm so excited about Evolve. And whether we're in Evolve or whether we're today, um, we just really need vendors to bake in cybersecurity into the solutions that they provide us. Kelly, before I let you go, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service or foreign service or both? Man, I, um, I would say that I feel blessed every day. I feel blessed when I have a meeting at 7 a.m. on Monday. <laughs> I have an awesome job. And I had an awesome job at the Pentagon. And I had an awesome job at DHS. There's a range of jobs available in the federal government. And I just, it never occurred to me that as part of my job, I would go to uh, Djibouti and go go talk to them about technology. It never occurred to me that I would um, be in Amman, Jordan, you know, talking to young women about how to get into technology in Jordan. Like, it's just, there's a ton of really cool opportunities. So I, I would encourage folks to look into it. And Kelly, I want to I thank you for joining me today and taking time out of your busy schedule. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, uh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed this. You made this really easy and fun. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Kelly Fletcher, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of State. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.